0: Welcome to the Supreme Court of Virginia podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ben Glass Law and Virginia Appellate Attorney Steve Emmert. Listening to oral arguments from the Supreme Court of Virginia is one of the best ways to stay abreast of both substantive and procedural law. And today's smart lawyers know that any case, even if it is outside their practice area, can offer a learning opportunity. So, listen, enjoy, subscribe, and leave us feedback.
1: The, the court is ready to hear you uh, you may begin
2: thank you good morning my name is Julie Porto and I represent the appellant Calvin Hampton in this case USAA who is Myers insurer and the entity responsible for defending him in this case found Hampton's complaint while it was monitoring court filings when it found that complaint, it was so clear to USAA that Meyer was the correct party, but that he had been simply named, that he contacted Hampton to inform him of this mistake. So Hampton is asking this court to follow the doctrine of stare decisis and to apply its decision in Richmond versus Volk so that Hampton, because Hampton sufficiently identified Meyer in the complaint, It was simply a misnomer, and he could non-suit and refile the case as he did.
3: Counsel, this is Justice Kelsey. May I ask you this? Um, So as I understand your opening remark, if a defense attorney knows that the plaintiff is making a misjoinder, suing the wrong party, in this case, the owner of the vehicle instead of the driver of the vehicle, if they know that, then that makes it a misnomer, not a misjoinder.
2: That's not my argument, Your Honor. My argument is if it's readily apparent to them, to anyone, who the correct defendant is, then that is a misnomer. That was what the court decided in Richmond versus Volk. That's not so something So, again, that
3: going back to my question, though, so if I understand your logic, if I'm a defense attorney and I know the plaintiff has sued the wrong party, not the right party, the wrong party, I know they made a dumb mistake then the law is going to characterize that mis- that dumb misjoinder, not as a misjoinder anymore, but as a misnomer. How can that possibly be? That doesn't even fit the definitions of either word.
2: The underpinning of uh, Richmond versus Volk, in any, every case it relies on, is that the correct party... Is identified. The correct party is part of this case. It's it's simply a misnom a misnaming of that party. That is the legal underpinning of this case. and every case, it relies on. And so we are not bringing in a new party. It is the correct party. The correct party is in this case. We're simply correcting the name of that party. So and you, if you have... sued
3: the owner. You sued the owner of the vehicle. You made a mistake. You should have sued the driver of the vehicle, and you're telling me you're not bringing in a new party by bringing in a new party.
2: Justice Kelsey, I think that goes to the issue of we Hampton sued. Uh, Hampton used a name that was shared with a real person, and that's the basis that he's trying to distinguish Richmond. But if we use that basis to distinguish uh, Richmond, we're essentially creating this new rule where anytime a misnomer shares the name of a real person, then we automatically have a misjoinder. And so I'm, I'm not saying that whether a misnomer and a real person share the name is never relevant. I think it's a factor that the court should consider when determining have we, is it readily apparent from the complaint that we've identified the correct party? It's a consideration. But as a blanket rule, I don't think it makes sense because as we've pointed out, almost every misnaming is going to be the same name as somebody in the United States. And so again, that just turns the doctrine of misnomer on its head, we are always, or virtually always, going to have a misjoinder. And so this idea that we're talking about is not unique to this particular situation. As I pointed out in the brief, if we had sued Noah J. Meyer with an A instead of an E, that would automatically be a misjoinder under this rule that we're suggesting, because there is likely a noah j meyer with an a out there somewhere and i don't think anyone dispute would dispute that noah meyer with an a is simply a misnomer and not a misjoinder and so to have a blanket rule i don't think makes sense i don't think it's principled i think that factor should be considered in determining whether it is readily apparent that Meyer, not his father, who shares that name, is the correct defendant.
4: Counsel, Counsel. Uh, this is Counsel, this is Justice Mims. Um, I always try to remember that when we write an opinion, it actually has to be applied pragmatically out uh, in courtrooms and law offices around the Commonwealth. When I used to handle cases of this nature, client would come into my office and indicate they had been in a traffic collision and um, then my uh, my paralegal would go to the police department I believe had to pay two dollars and would get an accident report and based and the accident report is um, what we would use to uh, prepare what, what we then called a motion for judgment I've been around for a, a while and um, I'm going to ask this same question of both counsel. Um, it appears that that's what happened in this case. Um, you get the police accident report, you take the name directly off of it. If a plaintiff's attorney cannot depend upon the accident report, then how can they find out in a timely fashion who the actual um, defendant is? What's, what's the I- other avenue?
2: I don't know Your Honor because I suppose one would say, well, you can just contact USAA and ask them, but they've got no obligation, there's no statute, there's no duty to tell Hampton who the driver was at that time. I know Meyer also suggested that Hampton should have correct, uh, I'm sorry, checked court filings to try to match the uh, charge with the correct name. But as we pointed out, there are so many people with the last name Meyer, it's pretty impossible to go that avenue. And so unless there's some indication that the police report is wrong, I don't know that it's reasonable to require an attorney to to go out and somehow find out who the true defendant is. And particularly in this case, Hampton was taken from the scene of the crash by ambulance. He never saw nor spoke to Meyer. So at no point, he's got the police crash report. It is an official report. He has correspondence from USAA. And in that correspondence, Michael P. is the first name that is used. So although not definitive because he's called the policyholder and not the driver, it, it's still I would It's confirmation to Meyer that he's got the right person. So at no point between the time of this crash and the time that Meyer, through USAA's agent, told Hampton, you have the wrong person, I'm the correct person, there was just simply nothing to indicate to uh, Hampton or to any reasonable person that this was not the correct person. And, and so given... Given this court's desire um, not to jettison substantial rights um, for formal defects, the court has the option here to allow this case to go forward on the merits by following uh, its case, Richmond versus Volk. And every case that Richmond versus Volk has relied on, that says if you have the correct party, then you have a misnomer. And you can correct that misnomer by non-suiting and refiling the case.
3: But you didn't have the correct party. You had the owner of the vehicle. And the question that was just asked you is, if you make a mistake and it's not your fault, are we going to take the owner of the vehicle and pretend it's a misnomer of the driver of the vehicle? That sounds a little bit linguistically stretched for me.
2: I understand your Honor, but I go back to the question is, is it readily apparent? And if it's readily apparent simply because the mistake in the name happens to belong to another person, we cannot automatically consider that a misjoinder because we're essentially just throwing out this court's decades of jurisprudence on what a misnomer is. This would How apply can it be
3: decades to- of jurisprudence if the very case you're relying upon was a four three decision. And you're talking about decades of of, of precedent on misjoinder and and um misnomer
2: yes your honor because if you look at richmond versus Bulk, it relies on um a state of james versus payton that relies on swan versus marks that relies on Alman versus rockwell allman versus rockwell was a case that was decided in 1971 that predated this 8.01-6 statute Um, And and if I keep going back, I found a, a case that was from 1895, and the quote is, a recovery may be had against a person in its true name, provided its identity be averred in pleading and apparent in proof. And so averred in pleading, apparent in proof, I'd say that's the same thing that uh, the court said in Richmond, which is, is it readily apparent who the correct party is? If it is, a mistake in name is not fatal.
1: Well, what is there in the complaint that makes it readily apparent uh, that um, this is not,
0: um, i to get them both, Michael, is Noah. Would you hire an appellate lawyer to handle your jury trial? Of course not. Trying cases requires a different focus, a different way of speaking, even a different way of thinking from handling appeals. So why would you ask a trial lawyer to handle your appeal? When it comes time to appear in an appellate court, trust a lawyer who specializes in appeals only. Steve Emmert limits his practice to appeals. Other lawyers consult him when they face tough problems in the appellate maze. Focus on what you do best. Call Steve Emmert at 757-965-5021 direct to find out how he can help you. Again, that's Steve Emmert at 757-965-5021. What uh, what Richmond versus Volk
2: told us is if you look at the complaint as a whole, can you determine who it is? And, and we've laid out in our brief all these factors so I can go through them. The first is that this crash occurred. We have the, the time and the date of the crash, December
1: 24th. But That doesn't tell you in the crash. It tells you there was a crash. So you got the time and date. What else do you have?
2: You have where the crash occurred. You have uh, okay, where well, the no, driver? Stop
1: let's, let's stop e- each one of those. You have it exactly where it occurred, but it doesn't tell who was in it. <laughs> tell me what are what's in the complaint that that leads somebody to believe that this is not a matter of uh, a mistake of of spelling, for example, but it's actually a different person altogether. Focus on that.
2: Sure. The intent here is to sue the driver of this vehicle. So when, when you're asking about how do we d- define the driver or how do we indicate the driver here, uh, I think the the best um, allegation we have is that the defendant driver violated a red light in violation of 46.2-833 um, and that disregarding that red light led to this Particular crash. I think that right there tells you what the driver did, and in conjunction with when he did it, where he did it, what happened after he did it. I think that makes it clear who the driver is. And I go back to the driver, but the USAA's com- the, the complaint says insurer.
3: the council, the complaint says the driver is Mike <coughs> P. Meyer. <coughs> And the whole argument you're making is that you read a police report, and that was the due diligence you did. And if it's not uh, gross negligence in following due diligence principles of of, uh, plaintiff's counsel, then you get a pass. How does that change the definition of a misjoinder and a misnomer? Because we're not dealing with equity here. We're dealing with legal definitions of legal words.
2: I agree. Due diligence is is not what's going to be determinative. What's going to be determinative is, can you de, can, do you know, by reading this complaint in full, do you know who the driver is? And here, Meyer knew who the driver was. He knew it was him because he told Hampton, I'm the driver. If there are no other questions, I'd like to reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal.
1: All right. You have 152.
2: Thank you, Your Honor.
5: Good morning. I'm Henry Carter for uh, the appellee, Noah Meyer, and um, we would ask that you affirm the order of Judge Snuckles that this was a misjoinder, not a misnomer, that this was a uh, wrong individual who had a different identity than the driver uh, who was sued. in answer to Justice Mims, who I believe addressed it, his question to both of us, um, if you look at the accident report, the name of uh, the father and the policyholder with USAA, Michael P. Meyer, was listed. But below that, and, and they did live at the same address. The son was a minor at the time. Uh, however, there's a birth date there, and it is in 1964 and not for a young man. And so I would argue and I empathize and I sympathize with, with the fact that that mistake was made and that the uh, plaintiff's attorney relied on the police report that was erroneous. But I think in meeting with their client and uh, talking about that birth date and trying to make sure that they sued the right person, <coughs> and did due diligence, that that would have brought up the discrepancy in the name and the birth date.
4: How, how could that happen? Counsel, have <laughs> you have you ever been a plaintiff's attorney as well as a defense attorney?
5: Judge, I have, or Justice, I have been on the plaintiff's side, but not very often.
4: Okay. And on each of those occasions, do you recall looking at the birth date to determine whether the person was actually, actually who was in the
5: accident report? I cannot specifically recall doing that.
4: I I, I tend to think that even even most prudent attorneys wouldn't, um, uh, and I'm sure you are a prudent attorney. Uh, I'm not sure if I was or not, but I don't recall looking at birth dates because it typically was not uh, an issue. Um, do, you, um, do you agree that not every time that there's an accident report will there also be some sort of a criminal or a traffic or criminal filing?
5: I do agree with that because there are not so in, in, accidents. in many In many cases,
4: the accident report is going to be the only um, document that's available in order to prepare uh, a complaint. Would you agree with that?
5: Correct. Okay
4: so if uh, if we follow your line of argument then from now on every plaintiff's attorney in the commonwealth um, would in order to do their due diligence and to be prudent and careful would actually need to look at the birth date of the party listed in the accident report and check with their client to see if that seems to comport with the uh, the age that the client remembers is that correct
5: Yes, sir. That would be one thing that could be done. Now,
4: what about the client who was, um, who was unconscious and who was taken to the hospital and who never met or never saw the defendant? Then what should a diligent, prudent attorney do to make sure that they don't wind up in this sort of a situation?
5: I think that the police report clearly was one of the mistakes. I do think, though, Justice Mims, if the Uh, complaint had been served once it had been filed and the defendant had gotten this then this would have come to light and it could have been addressed within the statute of limitations
4: so the um, in order to be prudent and careful from now on a plaintiff's attorney does not have um, simply the amount of time um, under the um, uh the statute of limitations as well as the service period after the statute of limitations but from now on a prudent and careful plaintiff's attorney will be required to actually count back and uh, perhaps take a few months before the statute of limitations to um, file serve and then wait for the responsive pleading To determine whether the police accident report was accurate is that what uh, is that what CLEs from now on should be teaching uh,
5: plaintiffs attorneys
4: in the Commonwealth
5: judge I think it is a prudent procedure to follow
4: I I will agree it's always a prudent procedure to not wait until the, the day of the statute of limitations but from now on Uh, you not only shouldn't wait until the statute of limitations but you should also factor in how long it's going to take you to get service and how long and the 21 days for responsive pleadings and ensure that all of those things happen before two years have passed is that correct
5: yes sir okay
3: counsel let me ask you this are you aware of any legal doctrine in Virginia that extends the statute of limitations, the two-year statute of limitations, on the premise that the plaintiff's lawyer used all the due diligence required by the court but still couldn't get it right? Is there a doctrine that says that, that the tolling of the statute of limitations occurs whenever you, you can't really, under ordinary conventional understandings of due diligence of counsel for one side or the other, you just can't figure it out? Because that seems to be the debate that we're having with you, which is the plaintiff's counsel, in this case, relied on a police report and so be it, that the the statute tolls until she figures it out. Is there any doctrine that says that?
5: Justice Kelsey, not that I'm aware of, no sir.
3: And I guess the follow-up question would be, in any of the misjoinder, misnomer cases, Are the definitions of misjoiner and the definition of misnomer subjectively calibrated to the due diligence or the subjective understanding of plaintiff's counsel? Are those definitions legally calibrated to a, a factual analysis of the plaintiff's due diligence?
5: No, Your Honor. And so our position would be, with the misjoinder, that um, the statute of limitations was not told under uh, 801-229, and that with any failure to um, have amended within the proper time period that the plaintiff's claim should be barred. Um, going back, and I think this is a difference between the Richmond v. Volt case, Um in this case, this it was never served upon the defendant, unlike in Richmond v. Volk. And um, so I brought that up before. Um, in addition, there was no attempt to avail uh, the appellant or by the appellant of 801-6. And so therefore, um, that does not apply. They could have availed themselves of that for non-suiting. And then they um, refiled a whole new action against a whole new defendant who was a distinct um, individual with a different identity. Counsel,
3: why was the the complaint never served, the first complaint never served? Do you have any answer to that? I do not. So they never served it, they never got a responsive pleading, they never did discovery, they never took a deposition, never filed an interrogatory, they never made a request for production, and then later they found out they made a mistake by reading a, a – some paralegal reads a accident report and pops it into the complaint. But they've done absolutely nothing that the court processes allow them to do to figure out if they've got it right. Am I right or wrong on that? You are right.
5: And so, if no further questions, I would rely on our brief and uh, Judge Snuckle's opinion orders and ask that you affirm her granting of our special plea based on the statute of limitations and affirm her judgment. Thank you. All right, Ms. Porto, you have one minute, 53 seconds.
2: Thank you, Your Honor. The doctrine of stare decisis is a foundation of our justice system. It provides stability in laws. It allows us as attorneys to regulate our behavior. If I know that there is a case um, that would be contrary to a position I want to take, I won't file a motion and take that position. Similarly, I won't oppose a motion that someone else has filed if I know that there are cases that counsel otherwise. Similarly, this is how just or judges know how to resolve motions. So while a court, as, as presently constituted, may not have agreed uh, with the decision that was made in the past, um, that the interpretation of an issue or of a statute or anything can't constantly change with every change in personnel, because there's just not any way to have an orderly system of justice if you don't follow the laws or the, the, the cases that are out there. In this case, um, it was noted that this complaint was never served and if anything i think that counsels in this case to show that there was no prejudice here the case was never served because within two weeks of the filing hampton was told by usaa that it had the wrong uh the name was incorrect that's why the case was non-suited that's why the case was never filed and then non-suited and so in reality, there is no difference in uh, Meyer's ability to defend this case um, if, it had been, um, if it had been correctly named in the beginning, because he would have found out about it at the exact same time. So applying the doctrine of star to say, Smith, Richmond is controlling in this case, and the court should follow it. Thank you.
0: All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to the Supreme Court of Virginia podcast. My name is Ben Glass, and Steve Emmert and I provide these oral argument audios for free as a public service. If you're a fan of the podcast, I'd love to send you my book, Renegade Lawyer Marketing, absolutely free. Just visit www.benglassreferrals.com, and I'll be glad to ship it to you. This book has helped thousands of lawyers across the country improve their lives and their practices. Again, that's benglassreferrals.com. Thank you for listening, and enjoy these oral arguments from the Supreme Court of Virginia.